So 1 Kings 12, beginning at verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labour and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered, the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. But all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 able young men, to go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites, Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again, as the Lord had ordered. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. You read really well. That's uh, 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is, um, you know, an ancient part of the Bible, your living word to us, but it is your living word to us. So we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd still our minds from distractions and you'd prepare ourselves to hear you speak and to speak into our lives so that our lives would be changed to live for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how much you picked up from that reading, but boy, oh boy, it's astounding how quickly what has been gained can be lost. Rehoboam becomes king after his father Solomon, and within days, the kingdom is split and he's left holding the small bit. Nothing lasts forever, right? You know, you walk through the British Museum, which is basically a cemetery for former empires, uh, you go through room after room of relics of kingdoms which were meant to last forever. No kingdom lasts forever. And yet, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we finish by saying, Yours be the kingdom forever and ever. Really? Forever and ever? Yes, yes, really. Because then we say, Amen which means we actually firmly agree with this. And we do. Why? Why do we agree? Because right now, Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, he isn't dead. Uh, he's alive. He was raised on the third day. He has not died since then. And because he has ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the heavens and the earth, therefore his is the kingdom, his is the power, his is the glory, forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Right. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer through the eye of one kings, where the kingdom of Solomon has been a real-life illustration to us on the ground of the kingdom of God. But because it's Jesus' kingdom, not Solomon's kingdom, which is the forever and ever one, Solomon's kingdom has to fall apart. And today, in the five chapters we're going to cover, 1 Kings 12 to 16, that's exactly what we see happen. The kingdom of Solomon falls apart after he dies. Things go so bad, in fact, that these chapters speak to us about, well, about why we would desire what God desires, why we would long for Jesus' kingdom to come but also because we have a foot in both worlds, you know, being part of Jesus' kingdom, but yet being part of this world, these chapters are very helpful because they remind us in a very earthly sense of why we need to keep the Lord as God and not forsake him. So here we go. The first thing we see from chapter 12 is how quickly things fall apart because of Rehoboam's foolishness in listening to his younger friends rather than the elders. The kingdom, which took all of 1 and 2 Samuel and then the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, the kingdom of God becomes divided in a matter of verses. Now, this is monumental. Uh, this mistake, this judgment, will cost thousands of lives in battle so that from this point on, History will follow twin tracks, that of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and the division will never be healed, well, until Jesus comes and unites the people of God back together again. And then after that split 
in the bit we didn't read from chapter 12, things get worse because next Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, leads God's people to abandon God completely. Jeroboam makes two golden calves and says, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then he leads the whole nation astray in worshipping them. Can you believe it, right? Golden calves. Don't they remember what happened last time the Israelites made a golden calf and worshipped it? Do you remember that moment? Around Mount Sinai, Moses was taking too long up on the mountain, so Aaron got all the Israelites to throw in their gold jewellery. He made a golden calf. He said, well, popped a golden calf. You know, what could I do? Um, Far out. God came this close to destroying them, and he would have if it wasn't for some very serious intercession on Moses' part. But even then, 3,000 people died. Now, here's Jeroboam doing exactly the same thing, not by coincidence, but by a deliberate, conscious, brazen repeat of that sin of rejecting the Lord. And guess what? The people followed him, lock, stock and barrel. How quickly a kingdom is divided. How quickly God's people abandon him. What is God going to do about this? Well, the answer is, He speaks. God speaks. Not empty words, words of power. Power to change history, power to change history by judgment. Judging Solomon, for starters. Last week we heard how Solomon committed apostasy, worshipping the gods of his wives. And so in chapter 11, the Lord sends his prophet Ahijah to a young official named Jeroboam. We're going back in time here a bit. Ahijah takes this new cloak, tears it into 12 pieces, says, this is what the Lord says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands. I'm going to give you, Jeroboam, 10 tribes. But for the sake of David, not in Solomon's lifetime, it won't. It'll happen to his son, Rehoboam. Those words have power, of course, because what God said in judgment comes true. Yes, of course, through the foolishness of Rehoboam, but also because chapter 12, verse 15, we've just heard it read. This turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. So when the kingdom splits and Rehoboam marches out to make war against the house of Israel, the Lord tells Rehoboam and his army, verse 24, don't go up to fight your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you. This is my doing. This is the God who works in history whose word carries power, whose word changes history. By now, everyone knows that the kingdom split that's happened is from God and that God's word is powerful, powerful to punishment. What God says happens. It works itself out in human history. Now, we'd think that this then, therefore, would make people a little bit cautious about committing apostasy again. You would think, right? Especially Jeroboam, He's the one who's gained in all of this. He's now king. But Jeroboam does it anyway. And again, God's word proves powerful to punish Jeroboam. In chapter 13, the word of the Lord comes to an unnamed man of God from Judah. He comes to Jeroboam and you can see it happening. You know, here's Jeroboam standing by one of his altars, offering sacrifices to his golden calf. 
the man of God comes and he cries out against the altar and he says, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. Now, later in 2 Kings, God's word proves powerful. It happens. A child king named Josiah comes to the throne and he desecrates Jeroboam's altar by taking the bones of the dead priests from the graves and burning them on the altar. The man of God also gives a sign. He says, the altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. Now, when Jeroboam hears this, he stretches out his hand as king And he says to the guards, seize him. And then the hand that he's pointed out shrivels up and the altar splits apart and the ashes are poured out, just as God said through the man of God. The word of God is powerful to judge. Jeroboam says, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. The man of God intercedes. His hand is restored. The word of God is powerful to restore as well as to judge. So the word of God is powerful. In Solomon's case, God speaks, the kingdom splits. Jeroboam's case, God speaks, the altar splits, right? The Lord speaks because he will not stand by and let his people just worship other gods and things to slide downhill. Now, that raises a question for each of us personally, doesn't it? Um, you know, what will God do for us? Well, the pace slows down. The camera zooms in on a good guy, a prophet, the man of God, the man of God who speaks God's words. Why suddenly focus on him? Well, we don't know yet, but let's watch out. Let's find out. Because the king's hand is restored, Jeroboam invites the man of God to come home and eat with him because he says, I want to give you a gift. The man of God says, not on your nelly. Even if you gave me half of your possessions, I wouldn't eat or drink with you. I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not eat bread or drink or or return by the way you came. So he had this very specific command from God. And he obeys. He doesn't eat or drink with Jeroboam. He goes home by another way. We think he's a good guy, or so we tell ourselves. But nearby, there's, there happens to be a certain older prophet who hears what's happened, and he saddles up his donkey, and soon he's on his way, and he finds the man of God under an oak tree. you the man of God from Judah? I am. Come home with me and eat. I can't come home with you and eat. I've been commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not eat eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. Ah, yes, but I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But then we're told the older prophet was lying Now, we're not told why he was lying. Why would he do that? Was it just to test him? But then why would the man of God need testing? The Lord had told him in a very clear and very specific personal command not to eat or drink, but to go home by another route. And he seems obedient. But what's going to happen? Well, the man of God, uh uh-oh, returns with the old prophet. 
he eats and he drinks at his house. And then while they're there at the table, then the word of the Lord comes to the old prophet against the man of God in his house. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and you ate bread and you drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. Well, that word of judgment happens much sooner than we'd we'd like. The man of God finishes his meal and it's on his way back that a lion meets him on the road and kills him. The older prophet then hears of this and he thinks, ah, that's the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. It's happened just as the Lord warned him. So he goes out and he finds this man's body lying between the lion who hasn't eaten it and the donkey. The lion hasn't eaten the donkey, right? Sort of miraculously lying there. He picks up this body And he takes it back and he places it in his own tomb and he mourns over him. He says, oh, my brother. He's so affected that he gives instructions that when he too dies, his bones are to be put beside those of this fellow man of God because there was power in the word of the Lord which this man spoke. And that's the story. What do you do with that? Shocking story. To us it seems unfair that this man of God should be killed for disobeying God, when he was so deliberately deceived, surely God's too harsh. We would have overlooked his sin, wouldn't we? Yes, we would have. But now the word of God has been effective here because what it's done is it's uncovered and laid bare the double standards which are at work in our lives. Do you remember earlier? We heard of God's people abandoning the Lord and bowing down to a golden calf. And we kind of expected God to do something, to act in judgment, because they'd turned away from worshipping the Lord. But now in the case of the man of God, we're actually shocked when God does judge in disobedience to his word. We think, well, what he did seems such a little thing. Hang on, but worship is all of life, isn't it? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. How can we, our worship be genuine if we deliberately go against what God said? We think, hang on, but he was lied to. Well, this is the real world, isn't it? There are lots of lies that we're going to be fed. Here was one the Israelites were fed. These are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. I wonder what lies we're being fed about what we should worship. Well, you don't have to think very much before you find out, do you? Where the word of God is clear, God expects us to obey. In this case, the word of God to the man of God was clear. Twice, the older prophet describes the man of God's disobedience as defying God's command. Now, that word defying, it implies a conscious decision to go against what you know God has said. And so you see, the story exposes us. On the one hand, we expect God to judge when worshipping other gods goes completely against what he says. On the other hand, we're shocked when God judges a good guy who doesn't worship God in the detail of his own life. What's the purpose of this story? On the personal level, it presses home how evil it is to knowingly 
go against God's word. This man's sin may have seemed minor when compared with Jeroboam's, but the thing that they both had in common was it was defiant. And defiance is not a small thing. You know, God wants us to worship him in all of our life, which means not going against what he said in the detail of our lives. Should we therefore expect God to strike us down when we sin against him knowingly? I don't think so for two reasons. First of all, Jesus came to take away our punishment on the cross. He has died for us already. But also, when your mind goes to where, this, where else this happens in the Bible, where would it go? Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, right? Maybe Korah's rebellion. It's very rare that God does this. And where it happens, it's usually at key moments, key pivotal turning points in the life of God's people. And these one-off events function as a disciplinary warning to the rest of God's people. Here Israel is at a turning point. It's early on in the life of the northern nation. Would they stay true to the Lord or not? This man's death is there to provide a very strong warning. The Lord is still God. We still need to follow him in our lives as God. And so this story in 1 Kings makes us realize how heinous it is Well, how heinous is what comes next. Look with me at chapter 13, verse 33, to the first three words. Okay, and here's the point. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. Even after this. First of all, the altar had split, his hand had shriveled, two very obvious signs of warning. And now the man of God dies for defying God's command. Even after this, Jeroboam appointed as priests of the high places anyone who just wanted to be a priest. So Jeroboam, obviously, he does not care about the Lord because he still has these high places where pagan gods are worshipped. He doesn't care about what God said about right worship, which was to happen at the temple, not wherever Jeroboam just decides. He doesn't care about God's holiness or who can be priests because he appoints just anyone who wants to. And Jeroboam is leading the nation. He's setting up an infrastructure of evil worship. This is not, therefore, a minor sin. He has defied God's word. He's led the nation against God's word, and he's done it in flagrant disregard of God's clear warnings. So what he's done is heinous. Verse 34 This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. Now, as this judgment works out, it becomes personally tragic. Jeroboam's son becomes critically ill. Jeroboam tells his wife to disguise herself and go to the prophet Ahijah to discover what will happen to the boy. Ahijah is almost blind But he says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I've got some news. He knows. The word of God's powerful. And now please note the pattern of what happens because it keeps getting replayed. God gives a leader a conditional promise. The leader sins. A word of judgment is spoken against him. And then that gets fulfilled. Ahijah says, tell Jeroboam this. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I raised you up, Jeroboam, and I made you a leader. 
I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you. You see, God had promised to begin again with Jeroboam if only Jeroboam walked faithfully with him. There's the promise. Now comes the sin. But you haven't been like my servant David. You've done more evil than all who lived before you. You've made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You've provoked me to anger and then you've thrust me behind your back. Sin. Now comes the word of judgment. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in the city, your boy will die. Jeroboam's wife gets up. She goes home. As soon as she enters the house, the boy dies. And all Israel mourns for him because the future of the nation is bound up in the life or the death of their princes. Through this boy's death and through a rogue named Basha, all of Jeroboam's house is cut off just as the word of God said. So that pattern, promise, sin, word of judgment, that word fulfilled, it keeps happening in these chapters again and again. It's what God does. He did it with Solomon in chapter 11 and 12. He does it with Jeroboam, chapter 14. It happens with Basha, chapter 16. And through these chapters, the power of God's word in the face of evil comes through again and again. Application, when God speaks a word of judgment, you've got to take it seriously, Right? It's not time to thrust God behind your back. Because there are consequences of abandoning God, and we see it being played out. First up, there's an escalation of war. Chapters 14 to 16 give a running commentary on both sides of the divided kingdom as it slides deeper and deeper into sin and, as so, into war. So chapter 15, verse 6, there was war between the houses of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Judah and Israel, throughout Abijah's lifetime. Chapter 15, verse 16, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. And it doesn't stop. God's people fighting now with one another, killing one another. This is a consequence, a terrible consequence, of abandoning the Lord. So there's an escalation of war, but also there's an escalation of evil. It starts with Solomon, chapter 11, verse 5. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. This was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It flows down from the king to the people, chapter 14, verse 22. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. Chapter 14, verse 24. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And it's not just Judah, it was true for Israel as well. Chapter 15, verse 26, Nadab did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he'd caused Israel to commit. Even for Zimri, who reigns over only seven days, he dies, chapter 16, verse 19, because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in the sin he had committed and caused Israel to commit. As we read on, the slide into evil gets worse and worse. Omri, chapter 16, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. By the time you get to the end of chapter 16, God's people who have been led by their kings have become deeply, deeply depraved. Listen to how Ahab's reign is summarized. 
Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an ashram pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. What is God going to do in the face of such escalating evil? Okay, he won't allow it to continue forever. In his anger, he speaks a word of judgment. In his mercy, he speaks a word of judgment. Words to judge evil, to stop it. That's why all of Jeroboam's family were wiped out by Basha, just as God foretold, to put an end to the sin going down in Jeroboam's line. That's why Basha and his descendants were wiped out by Zimri, as God foretold, because he'd persisted in Jeroboam's sins. Okay. Well, there's those chapters. It's pretty grim, isn't it? (laughs) That's why I did them all in one go, rather than over four weeks or something like that. Right? Next week, Elijah comes onto the scene. Hooray! All right. But all of scripture is God's word. And today God is speaking to us through this bit. What's the message? Well, today we've seen why when we pray, we finish by ascribing to the Lord that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Because the kingdoms of men, we don't want them to last forever and ever. The kingdom of God on earth, ruled by sinful kings, in the end it was so evil, it was a mercy, it didn't last. But that's the nature of human kingdoms, isn't it? I mean, in the book of Daniel, they're described as frightening beasts. Greece, Media, Persia, Rome, savage beasts with terrible teeth that will tear people apart. That's the nature of the kingdoms of the world. And even the best of human societies, and we have to say, living here in Australia, ours is pretty good, isn't it, really, by comparison. From God's point of view, there is terrible evil when he's not worshipped. You know, these chapters are here so that even in Australia, we would be able to see our nation with spiritual insight and then desire God's desires and long for Jesus' kingdom to come. Don't you long for Jesus to come and for God to be worshipped wholeheartedly? For this not to be kind of a politically incorrect thing that happens, you know, where you're kind of silenced, embarrassed, you know, by work colleagues or something like that. Where you can live publicly, you can come out as a Christian. Um, In the meantime, we've seen the power of the word of God to judge evil. God has spoken his word about our rulers. In the end, you see, the day when Jesus comes in his kingdom, the day of Christ, that day of glory, that also has another side. It will be the day of judgment when the word that has been spoken will be fulfilled. There will be a day of judgment when all worldly powers are destroyed. The day, the day of judgment, foretold by the prophets, taught by Jesus, proclaimed by the apostles. It's coming, just as sure as God's word proved powerful in these chapters, it's coming. Because 
God spoke it and his word has power and it changes history. It will come. So that's the day. How are we going to stand and not be swept away because of a day, a day 2,000 years ago, when the skies of judgment grew dark and a righteous king strung up, uttered a forsaken cry? Because in God's love for us, the judgment of God was being poured out upon his son who was punished in our place. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And since now, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? There's confidence, you see, on the day, because of a day, when Christ died for us. The day that's coming, a day that's been. What about today? I want to finish by reading to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter really applies all of this in a better way than I can, so I'm just going to let him speak. Regarding his promise that the day of Christ will come, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the, our Lord's patience means salvation. Our Father in heaven, sobering reading, but you have spoken and your word has power. So, Father, with those two goals in mind that Peter wrote about, salvation and living holy and godly lives. We pray that in the meantime, you would use us as your people. Bring us across the paths of other people who are yet to be saved. And may we be able to speak of you into their lives so that they can hear and come to repentance and salvation through faith in Jesus. May this happen this week. May you open up doors and moments for us to be able to speak. And secondly, Father, we pray that in our own lives you'd help us to be holy, you'd help us to be godly, and you'd help us to make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with you. We want to be in good shape when Jesus comes back. Help us because we need help. In Jesus' name, amen.